Hello, 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 and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am the editor-in-chief of The Pitch and the co-host, well, the only host, I suppose, of this show. Uh, We cover everything going on in KC and a lot of stuff that's happening out there. Guess what I did this week? I adopted a puppy! Well, uh, not, not so much puppy. He's three years old. I adopted a dog! Uh, Captain Trips. Uh, he had been in a shelter here locally uh, since since he was a baby. Uh, so for for three years or so, um, just uh, just has lived shelter life. Uh, he hadn't been adopted. We were told because he was too shy. Basically, he would meet with people, and uh, he just didn't seem to have any interest in them. When he met with us, he was actually clawing at the door to get back into the shelter, uh, and we were like, I can understand how people. I uh, took that personally, but just a shy, shy dog uh, that's that's just never been out in the world. Probably hasn't suffered any abuse, but still, um, his uh, his big thing is that uh, not a big fan of male dogs, and it turns out uh, males in general. But he's quiet. Uh, he doesn't jump on anybody. He doesn't bark for any reason. Uh, he he barely likes going on walks. He seems very very chill. Uh, the only problem is that every once in a while he decides to bite me, and and the best part of it is there's no growl, there's no surprise. He just walks up to me. Uh, we're we're petting, uh, giving some treats, having a nice old time. Sometimes he's even like sitting on my lap, and then all of a sudden, uh, just a turn and a snap. <laughs> and so, we uh, we almost immediately put him in an obedience school that we're working in. That's been going fairly well. The only problem is that my wife can do a lot of things with him that I can't do, especially. Uh, around being really close to him and uh, and petting him. So I'm basically doing all the stuff that we were supposed to do in week one, uh, but my wife is doing like stuff from week three. Uh, I have to I have to learn the foundation to be able to get to the place where she is. But Captain Trips, uh, Trippy seems to be having a nice old time. We have this big backyard and we were just like, we don't use it for anything. Somebody should enjoy it. Uh, and uh, now it belongs to Captain Trips and to... A small army of rabbits uh, that we are seeing a little less of now, uh, now that he is back there. He has been uh, a wonderful addition. Uh, that, <laughs> that is the, the, uh, the phase of quarantine that we are in, is uh, time to adopt a dog. Uh, just going to put some time and effort into that, and also now I have a reason to stand up, go outside, do some walks. He's wonderful, and uh, I, I, I am really hopeful that uh, things pan out with us. We're still in sort of a trial period here. Our biggest concern was actually whether or not he'd get along with the cats, it turns out he's afraid of the cats, despite being 10, 15 times larger than they are. Uh, one of the cats is actually hissing at him a little bit, uh, a cat that doesn't hiss at all and sort of chasing him around. Uh, and that's the only real trouble in the house. I'm like, all right, we'll have to teach the cats to calm down. That's new. Uh, anyway, we have a wonderful episode of the podcast today. Uh, first thing up, our, face, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment uh, is going to read a piece from Barb Shelley about why Kansas City does not manage its own police department. A uh, fascinating topical thing uh, for us to hit on. Take it away, Jason. Our police problem. Why doesn't KC control its own PD? Crime in 1939. By Barbara Shelley. Kansas City was smarting from tear gas, hurled projectiles, and unspent rage when Mayor Quinton Lucas stepped before reporters on June 4th. He had just concluded an emergency meeting with fellow members of the Board of Police Commissioners. Lucas announced a list of measures the board had agreed to after days of unrest as Kansas City joined much of the nation in reacting to the videotaped murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. 
Patrol officers would be getting body cameras. The police chief would review the use of tear gas and projectiles. Outside agencies would review police shootings and use of force incidents. Whistleblowers within the police department would be given protections. After summing up those overdue steps, Lucas, in a roundabout way, mentioned something else that has Kansas City and simmering with resentment. I know how often it is discussed that there is a different control structure of the police department as compared to other cities and certainly other city departments, he said. Right. It's called state control. Kansas City is the only city in the nation that doesn't control its own police department. Rather, a board appointed by the governor of Missouri runs the show. Four appointments and the current mayor select the police chief and set policies for the department. When he campaigned for mayor last year, Lucas emphatically supported Kansas City controlling its police department. But in the days since policing supplanted COVID-19 as priority one in Kansas City, Lucas has not used his pulpit to demand local control. He has not announced a plan to approach the Missouri legislature or gather signatures for an initiative petition, the two routes for freeing Kansas City from state control. I've said many times I support local control of the Kansas City Police Department, but local control alone will not make our community safer or combat violent crime, Lucas tells the pitch in a statement. As mayor, I remain focused on actions we can take today to build police community relations and to create a better Kansas City for all. It's true that Lucas's first year as mayor has turned into quite the test, mostly due to events beyond his control. But two realities are also true. There's never going to be a good time to take on the issue of local control, and somebody needs to do it. The conventional wisdom about state control of Kansas City police is summarized in a few paragraphs in the history page of the department's website. There we learn that Kansas City's police department was created under state control in 1874. It was governed by a board of men appointed by the governor, the narrative states. But then, the city council, heavily swayed by a corrupt Tom Pendergast, approved a home rule ordinance in 1932 that brought KCPD under city governance for the first time. Corruption of the police force ensued, just like that. Local control equals corruption. But corruption didn't exactly ensue because Kansas City gained control of its police department. Kansas City had just boozed its way through 13 years of prohibition, with boss Tom Pendergast and city manager Henry McElroy protecting the speakeasies and the state-controlled police force looking the other way. With Prohibition ended in 1933, Pendergast and his crime partner skimmed from gambling and brothels. William Worley, a Kansas City historian, explains how it worked in The Decline and Fall of the Pendergast Machine. If those who plied these trades did not make the expected payments, the McElroy-controlled police could step in to shut down the illegal side of any of these enterprises. The fact that the police were essentially part of the machine after 1932 increased the effectiveness of the entire protection scheme. Kansas City may have been outrageous in its levels of corruption during the 1920s and 30s, but it was not unique. Prohibition marked a change in how corruption was organized, Gary Potter, a professor at Eastern Kentucky University, writes in The History of Policing in the United States. Organized crime was able to emerge from the shadows and deal directly with corrupt police. In many cities, police became little more than watchmen for organized crime enterprises, or, on a more sinister vein, enforcement squads to harass the competition of the syndicate paying the corruption bill. Nevertheless, reformers in 1939 decided that the Kansas City machine and police had gone a bridge too far and sent the police department back under state control. And there it's remained for the past 81 years. We will pause here to note the irony that, due to fears of corruption, the Kansas City Police Department is controlled by a state government that absolutely reeks of corruption. See Eric Greitens, Steve Tilley, the attempts to overturn the clean Missouri reforms, and the torrent of dark money poured into state elections. And that's just getting started. 
Even if the Missouri state government wasn't rank, its priorities have veered far away from the safety and health of its largest city. After initially indicating interest late last year in some common-sense gun safety reforms for urban areas struggling with gun violence, Republican Governor Mike Parson flipped and said there was no way he was going to talk about gun control. And this is the guy who appoints members of the Board of Police Commissioners. A few half-hearted attempts have been made over the years to look into local control, task forces, study groups, and the like. They always come back with the same dodges. Change would be a lot of work. Kansas City's police force is really pretty good. But corruption! Kansas City's police department in general is well organized and trained, but violent crime in the city is out of control. The department's clearance rate for homicides is abysmal, 43% in 2019, and family members are questioning a number of fatal shootings by police officers. When I attend national conferences, I am pleased to hear about the reputation of the KCPD among other agencies. Police Chief Rick Smith wrote in a blog post late last year, which has aged about as well as a dead catfish on a hot dock. We are known nationwide as leaders in everything from data-led policing to de-escalation training to social services, Smith went on. We have not experienced the strained community relationships or large-scale scandals other major city departments have. That's not by accident. Maybe it's because of the members of our community who sit on our oversight board. Given the hundreds of anguished protesters who confronted his officers at the Nichols Fountain and the number of individuals and groups calling for his resignation, the chief may be rethinking his sunny view of community relationships. The heat is on, and it's not going to stop. Melissa Robinson, the city council representative for the 3rd District, has been pushing a resolution to once again study local control. Her constituents, she said, are especially interested in setting up a review board of police actions independent of the department, and they can't achieve that under the current structure. I think that the energy is there, Robinson says. We need to capitalize on the community's interest in this topic. Partly in response to her efforts, Lucas has established a public safety study group, but its main focus is on crime and gun violence. Local control is one of the last issues scheduled to be addressed. I'm trying to make sure that local control should be in the forefront of the study group, Robinson says. Good for her, and good luck. Kansas City needs its police department to answer to its citizens, not a remote state government that, by and large, could care less about what those citizens think or want. Thank you so much, Jason. And now it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, and I'm here with this week's local music recommendation. The Appleseed Cast's Mayor Vitalis celebrated its 20th anniversary in February of this year, but we didn't have this podcast then, so we're celebrating it now. Released February 8th of 2000 on Deep Elm Records, the album came in between the band's debut, The End of the Ring Wars, and the acclaimed Low Level Owl Volume 1. While not as heralded as either of those albums, Mayor Vitalis saw the band finding its sound and moving ahead from the rather more emo touchstones of its debut. It was during this era that I first saw the band live, and I don't think I've ever fallen in love with a band so quickly. You can find Mayor Vitalis on most streaming services, as well as at Deep Elm's Bandcamp. We also had an interview with frontman Chris Creasy when the Appleseed cast released The Fleeting Light of Impermanence on Graveface Records last year, and you can find that on the Pitch's website. Take a listen to the album's third track, Forever Longing the Golden Sunsets, a soaring, aching piece of post-hardcore indie rock. With lyrics like, I've fallen away, I've fallen to nothing, you can hear the titular longing in frontman Creasy's delivery.
Thank you, Nick. Okay, uh, rounding out the show today, uh, we have an interview that I've done with Chuck Pruitt. Now, Chuck, for nearly 30 years in the Kansas City area, has been a photojournalist. Uh, he's been capturing a lot of things over the years. He is retired now, uh, which he is thankful for because it means he doesn't have to cover the protests and, and stuff around COVID and, and a lot of other things. But in his time in Kansas City, uh, he's seen just a lot. So I uh, wanted to hop on the phone with him and, and just ask him about some of his stories. And we have uh, a fascinating chat. I learned about a lot of things. And, uh, and one of the things that he weighs in on uh, with uh, pretty heavily is his experiences uh, watching how the Kansas City police interact with various communities over the years and why that might be playing strongly into why said issues are coming to a head right now. Here's my interview with Chuck. Chuck, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself to people? Uh, my name is uh, Chuck Pruitt. Uh, I was a photojournalist or news photographer. Uh, we were called by many things. Uh, shooters was <laughs> one of the more common ones. Probably not the best name these days, but yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, bring that one back. <laughs> yeah, I remember, you know, uh, you know, back in the day when I'd come home and we'd be talking and somebody said, what would you do today? And I said, well, I shot the president. And, you know, in my vernacular, that meant, you know, I videotaped him, I photographed him. But, you know, to the average person, it probably sounded a little shocking <laughs> Maybe until I explain what I meant by that. Uh, but uh, so I uh, FBI computer listening to this call right now. I would just like to tell the FBI, yes, that was that was a joke. No one had <laughs> shot the president. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's you know that was always you know that's what they always called this was yeah you know a reporter would go to the desk and they'd say I need a shooter and that meant you needed a photographer. Uh, what what uh, years did you first become active uh, and and did, did you start in Kansas City? No, I graduated. Uh, I graduated from uh, journalism school at University of Missouri in 1983 in the broadcast uh, uh, curriculum, and almost immediately I were, I got a job at the uh, CBS affiliate in Springfield, Missouri, so at KOLR TV, and uh, I spent about five years there. In my first five years, and it was uh, it was very uh, it was great. It was very. Uh, very educational. I really learned a lot there. There were some some you know good veterans there that I could learn from, and and then I moved on from there. I went to Memphis, Tennessee, for a couple of years and worked there. And I came to Kansas City in uh, 1990, and I spent 25 years at KCTV uh, as a news photographer, as you know for the most part what we would call a general assignment photographer. You know where you you'd go out on a little bit of everything. Uh, so you got kind of a taste of a little bit of politics, a little bit of crime, a little bit of, you know, um, all of it. Uh, so it was very interesting. It was a, it was a fascinating career and uh, and some interesting things happened in Kansas City in the time I was a photographer, some of them good and some of them not so good. And unfortunately, in the news business, we tend to focus on the not so good. What, what was one of the weirdest things that you got to see in your time working this job? Oh gosh, um, you know, I don't. Boy, that's a tough one. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I just th I I think in terms of an overall impression and not one particular incident, I think it was to see somehow uh, uh, that w the influence we do kind of especially television uh, puts on the news that we kind of do 
and I'm not saying purposefully or, or intentionally, uh, but we do sort of tend to change situations sometimes that might otherwise not uh, unfold the way they do. Uh, and I think a lot of that, you know, is just because, you know, people see other people, they see what makes it on TV. You know, if, if yelling and screaming and carrying on gets you on TV and that's their purpose, well, then that's what they're going to do. And because they know that, you know, anytime we go to an event, you know, you're there and some somebody acts outrageous. Well, that's where all the TV cameras turn. And so you're, I don't you're talking know. sort of like a Heisenberg principle of, of just the, the mere fact of you being there to observe changes, the behavior of the people around you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you'd see it a lot. You know, there was a, a number of, uh, of murders on the east side. Uh, you know, it became known as the prospect killer uh, killings. And I, I cannot remember the person's name who got arrested for it right now, but Anyway, when those were going on, there was a lot of uh, of um, not demonstrations, but um, uh, just events where they would, you know, kind of bring, try to bring attention to these to these homicides because they were mainly women who some of them were prostitutes. I'm not, I don't believe all of them were, but some of them, you know, kind of did that work, and and so it was just a, you know events they would uh, vigils, I guess you would call them. And you would show up and the people, you know, would talk to you, hey, how you doing, you know, da, 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 da. And then as soon as those cameras came on, that that would change the scene immediately uh, in a number of cases where all of a sudden these people would start reacting to the camera. And obviously you can't judge whether that would be any different if you weren't there, if that show of emotion would be there either way. But I think sometimes we – and I would see that a lot on, on – um, because unfortunately in TV news, you do a lot of, you know, you go to a lot of crime scenes and you see a lot of that sort of side of life. And, and that's what a lot of, you know, their people's interaction with police um, is based on that. A lot of times is that not confrontation, but that scene in on the street. And I think sometimes I'm not sure if we're, if we're accurately depicting what's going on and just observing from afar or if our presence there is actually affecting it. I don't know if that answers your question. But... It's, it is fascinating how much of, uh, <laughs> I, I guess I, I always knew it before entering into local journalism uh, because I'd heard it from other local journalists over the years, but just sort of the focus on crime and how much it becomes a part of your life. David Simon, the uh, the writer who created the TV show The Wire, amongst other things, uh, his his first job in Baltimore was for uh, the Baltimore paper, and his job every day was basically just to write up uh, everyone who'd come through the morgue and uh, all the sort of things around, like, police brutality and stuff. And he's like, you know, you do that for a couple of years, and uh, when, uh, when somebody accuses me of being a, a liberal or doesn't like my politics, I'm like, well, you know what, I've seen how this functions. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, a few years of, of of doing that sort of thing every single day will uh, will really change your outlook on the world and how uh, how our our society exists. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, again, I think you know, unfortunately, and and you know, I, I'm not I'm not on I'm not here to 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 give the big answers or anything. But unfortunately, you know, when you look at um, in dealing the 
community and police, and I guess that's a big issue right now. Is and when I look at my time in Kansas City, you know what I would see a lot on at scenes, and and you know the a, a very common thing that we would go to would be what we call an Op 100, and you know people aren't familiar with that term. It stands for Operation 100, and it's an it's an operation that the police will will enact when they have someone you know barricaded in a house or and doesn't want to come out, and, and they think there's a danger there, and they will they will you know uh, uh, enact this this Op 100, and what it does is it basically turns that neighborhood into a military zone. I mean, they come in with these dressed in a camouflage and dressed in that, you know, just like you're seeing on TV and they come into these communities mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and not, not really, you know, I'm not commenting on that positive or negative. All I'm saying is, is that what happens in those situations and I saw it time and time again is, you know, the people who happen to live in that neighborhood who have nothing to do with the crime that's going on or have nothing to do with the people who are holed up in the house, they come home from work and they hit these police barricades, and I would see it over and over again, uh, and they would get a very short, abusive um, um, attack, basically, by the police. They'd say, hey, uh, you know, I live right over there. Can I go home? And immediately they would be pounced upon. No, no. What's going on? None of your business. Go sit over there. I saw an officer take his flashlight and smash it across the hood of somebody's car one time when he didn't think he was moving fast enough. And I would see a lot of that sort of abuse uh, that would go on. And and the problem with that is, and I understand it's a very tense situation for the police department, but these are people who work very hard all day long. They they just want to go home and sit in front of the TV or whatever, and they come and their and their neighborhood's been turned into this this armed you know um and and the and the interesting thing about that is is i can't tell you the number of times i went to these events and you'd sit there for hour after hour after hour and they would eventually they'd go into the house and guess what the person was long gone there was nobody in there. the house was empty and so you and basically just shut down this whole like part of the city uh and and, and created this uncomfortable situation for dozens if not hundreds of people for a ghost. <laughs> right. I mean, there was uh, one of the first ones I went to in this because, uh, like I said, I worked in two other markets. So I dealt with police departments, you know, in Springfield. I dealt, you know, I did a story one time where they fired the town marshal and we went down and interviewed him and we asked him what his, you know, are you, the, what do you go by? Are you a marshal? Are you a, and he goes, you can call me marshal. You can call me chief of police. You can call me whatever you want because I'm the only police officer they have. It's a one man department. So I dealt with, you know, departments like that all the way up to the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. And so, you know, I you run the spectrum of, you know, federal agents and all these different police agencies. And so, and they all treat you pretty much the same. Some of them treat you differently and some of them. Uh, but when you would, you know, like in these communities, like in Kansas City, like I said, you would see this and you think, well, you know, these same officers, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go to a news conference and some officer is going to say, you know, the problem is we can't get people in these communities to cooperate with us. Well, when you when you sort of come in and, you know, berate them and pound your flashlight on their hood because they want to go home and see their family and and you can't even explain to them, you know, what you've explained to the media. I mean, they've come over to us and they've said, hey, there's an armed man in the building down there, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. 
and to not even offer that up to the people in the community as a, to people, and then you want them to take responsibility for their community, and you want them to be part of that community. And then when something happens in that community, and they ask what's going on, you tell them to go sit down and shut up and mind their own business, you know. And it it just it just sets up a bad, you know. It, it's it's not it's not pretty to see, and I would see it a lot. Unfortunately, I would see it a lot. As a matter of fact, I would bring it up as a subject matter for when they, when they were always you know you'd go into meetings in the newsroom and you'd say what you know stories ideas, and I would always suggest that the photographers because when we get to those scenes, you know the reporter immediately goes over and tries to find the the um, police department spokesperson, the PIO. And, you know, they're trying to, and they're thinking about their live shot and they're thinking about, you know, getting people to talk to them and stuff. And the photographers kind of set up and we start observing what's going on around us. And so sometimes we see things that aren't really part of the story, but they're, they're, uh, very important, uh, in terms of the relationship between the police and, uh, and the community. And there was just times where I just saw where, you know, it just didn't seem to really, be the type of um, environment that would elicit that kind of cooperation. Did you ever worry that in the, in the same way that sort of that Heisenberg thing around like vigils and stuff, that uh, the mere presence of the media around some of these things was having an effect on the behavior of the police? Um, yeah. I mean, maybe sometimes good. I mean, maybe sometimes it's sort of, uh, mitigated what they might otherwise do. I mean, from some of the videos that we've seen, unfortunately, um, you know, lately, mm -hmm. you see the kind of stuff that goes on. And uh, so maybe the, our presence there sometimes mitigates that. But there are also times when I think, you know, there was a situation in the, and um, not too long after I started working here, and it was, uh, they had discovered that uh, a Nazi, uh, a man who had been a German Nazi, had, worked for, uh, had been a German officer, Nazi, whatever, uh, during the war, and he was living in KCK. And the mm -hmm. media found out about it, and, you know, uh, they went over there, and they kind of confronted the guy, and the guy got very upset, and, and it got to be a very agitated situation, and the police were called in, and the guy comes out of his, he goes inside, comes out of the door with a pistol, and he starts waving around, the police shoot him and kill him. Now, I mean, you know, there are those who could look at that and say, well, if the media hadn't been there and stirred up that situation, that guy probably might not have been shot and killed. I don't you know, know. I'm not going to worry too much about the uh, death of a Nazi. I, well, uh, I'm not going <laughs> to. Exactly. There you go. I mean, and that's, I think, in that situation, a lot of people said, well, you know. Uh, but, Every you know, once so in a while, I, you're like, you know, due process isn't the most important thing. In, in yeah. This. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I don't, I don't remember a, a strong outcry of people, <laughs> you know, really standing up for this gentleman. And, and I think, you know, and again, I, I you know, I, I it, I don't remember all the details, but I think it was pretty much uh, uh, verified that he had been this person who had worked in one of the camps during the war. So, I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was some, it was some very dramatic video that the media got. Uh, I wasn't there, but we had a crew there. Our, I mean, all the stations had a crew there. So, but, you know, I don't know if that all would have happened um, had the TV cameras not been there or not. I don't, you know, it's one of those things. How do you know? You know, how do you know? So you you, you got to what you got to witness firsthand and and be sort of a participant in decades of Kansas City 
police work and watching how these things happen from from the side and 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 sort of how we build to a position that we're in now. First question, I suppose, being, are you happy that you retired when you did so that you aren't on the streets for this right now? <laughs> uh, I mean, definitely. I mean, from a, from a, diff, a couple different standpoints. One, from <laughs> the, the, the COVID, you know, because, you know, as long as I was in the business, I remember I wasn't too long in, in Springfield, Missouri. You know, I was still, you know, a rookie. And, you know, I came in one day and they go, hey, we got a huge flu epidemic uh, up in Osceola, Missouri. And so we're going to send you up there. And that's <laughs> when I got the first taste of, you know, that, you know, it's, I mean, not, I, and I'm certainly not going to equate what I do or what we do to that of, of, of first responders. But it is that same sort of um, scenario where when everybody's running one way, you're running the opposite way. So when everybody's right. running from the tornado, you're running to the tornado. Uh, and so from that perspective of like, uh, you know, there's a break outbreak of COVID, um, you know, someplace we're going to send you over there. Yeah, that perspective, I'm happy I'm not any longer doing it. And then from the perspective of um, just how the media is being treated and how journalists are being treated, um, I'm, that's very frightening and to me. And I and I'm surprised that and you know I'm pleasantly surprised that more things haven't happened and the things that have happened I, I I find very disturbing. So from that perspective, and then also from the perspective of which might be subject matter for another, you know. Uh, another time is just how the business changed and how outside influences started taking influence into newsrooms that I found um, troubling as someone who who had a degree in journalism. And that's the thing about television news that's probably different from print journalism is there's a lot of people that get into television news that don't have journalism degrees. They come from all walks of life. I work with people who were theater majors. I work with people who were who had no college degrees, I had, and all of them were very capable. Uh, but they didn't have that journalism foundation that um, I had, and you know some of my coworkers had. So that when when you when I witnessed, as I did in my newsroom, uh, the sales department starting to have effect on how we did our job and have it and and sort of dictating stories we did and things like that. That was very disturbing to me. So from that perspective as well, uh, I thought the business and I had, like I said, they were done with me and I was done with them. So it was, <laughs> it was time to part ways and I had the opportunity to do that. And so I took it. I, I guess the final question here is, is, is reflection on, on that. And, and as a whole, like you talked plenty here about, uh, the issues around the police and, and concerns about reform and, and, and what that could look like and what's led to this point. But I, I, I suppose many of the same com concerns apply, especially in the last four or five years, to concerns about the media. Do you think that there is anything <laughs> that, that can be done in the years to come to restore the public's faith in journalism in in being able to believe what they're saying or has has stuff like facebook completely rotted away anyone's ability to have you know uh any sort of media literacy <laughs> well i you know i'm you know i'm 67 years old so i mean i've kind of and i've i've kind of even before i got into this business i was as a kid i always read the paper 
my mom watched the news, so I watched the news. So I've always been sort of a news watcher and observer, even before I even thought of being in the business. And and I wasn't driven to being in this business. I didn't actually get into it until I was almost 30. I was in two other lines of work before I did this, but it did end up being my career. Uh, but, um, um, you know, I think uh, – there is an opportunity, but what I see, you know, from, you know, what I try to observe is that a lot of the, what I would call the real journalism isn't being done by the people I depended on when I was a kid, you know, like I could depend on CBS news. I trusted right. Walter Cronkite and I, you know, I trusted Dan rather. And unfortunately it's sort of what I mentioned before, unfortunately, especially with television, and that's what I can address more than anything, with television news, unfortunately, many newsrooms and in this community and other communities, uh, like I said, sales departments kind of come in and start dictating content. You know, um, hospital groups are a big one, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get into it too much. But uh, hospital groups are like, you know, and you'll see it on the news all the time, and where they'll there'll be a medical spot and and it's really a commercial but it's running in the newscast and um and they will put a little disclaimer or they're supposed to put a little disclaimer before the segment you know the following is brought to you by you know da 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 hospital company or whatever you know and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't but they run the piece and for the casual viewer you're looking at that and you see that as the news and um but me having been in the business, I look at that and I go, well, that's a commercial that's running mm-hmm. the news. And so that aspect of it, I think, unfortunately, and as for financial survival, I think a lot of these, maybe they have to do that in order to survive in this climate uh, of cable and streaming and all that. But uh, I think most of you know, I've gone way longer than I should have. But I think what I see is it's mostly in the smaller uh, journalistic enterprises that where you see the real journalism being done because I think there's less of an influence of outside <laughs> influence on on some of the smaller operations and, and I, I, I assure you fun. at the pitch that we are making no money so it is very <laughs> difficult for anyone to uh, take editorial control away from us right so that, and that's you know and unfortunately that's I think that's you know because once you know they discovered that newsrooms you know news newsrooms in a TV station used to always be losers they never made money you did right. it because it was a public service once they started figuring out it was you know it was a revenue generator and, and now in most tv stations it's probably one of the biggest revenue generators the 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 uh the amount of news that you see every hour you know every newscast you know that you see the hours and hours isn't because there's that much news out there it's because they realize these people are on the clock anyway so let's put them in front of a camera and that's programming we don't have to buy and that's programming we control the advertising dollar for so even if you get very low ratings for like a nine o'clock newscast you're controlling every dollar that's going into you know you're getting it all and you've got people who are already on the staff on staff so that's why you see the 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 explosion of you know four o'clock five o'clock six o'clock nine o'clock ten o'clock you know it's because it's cheap programming and it's it's profitable, and that's part of the problem. I think is that once you start getting those problems, it's hard to turn the tap off. So in terms of it turning around, 
I don't see it in television news, especially local television news. I don't see it there. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I think we'll end by denoting that uh, people might not know it, but uh, your uh, your daughter is also a photographer uh, who has started doing some work with us. So uh, it is good that the, the Pruitt family continues uh, to uh, to document uh, Kansas City and will do so for a long time. Thank you so much for uh, for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. And let's uh, let's talk again sometime soon. Anytime, Brock. Anytime. I'm All right. Have a you. wonderful day. Thank you so you much. Too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Streetwise podcast. Uh, please rate, review, uh, reach out, let us know what you would like us to be doing. Uh, if you have ideas for things that we we should be dabbling in, if you have ideas for uh, interviews you'd love to hear, uh, let us know. Uh, otherwise, follow along at thepitchkc.com. We have incredible content going up all of the time. Uh, really appreciate you listening. Pitch in, and we'll get through it. Thank you so much. Thank you.